Ellen on politics. Our needs are one in building an orderly economic democracy in which all can profit and in which all can be secure. Divided will fall. Come on now, people, let get on the ball and work together. GDP is not a good measure of economic performance or societal well-being. You know together we will stand every boy, girl, woman, and a man. Hello and welcome to Alan on Politics. Well, so far in these series of videos, podcasts, I've been discussing democracy and the rights of property and how the U.S. founders limited the exercise of democracy in order to protect property rights. And I looked at justifications for property rights and found that the best justification offered at the time of the founding of the U.S. Constitution was that um, property rights increased the incentives for people to make good use of property for their own personal benefit, but it also creates more wealth for society in general, but that any system of private property rights would have to entail a universal guaranteed income so that everyone could have access to the basic goods needed for surviving, for living. And that's not out of charity to those people, nor is it the case that people have to earn the right to survive. It's that we should all have access to the goods of the earth that nobody in particular created. That is, you know, plants, animals, earth, trees, all the rest of that. Those are products of nature, and we should all have some access to them, at least enough to survive. So I've made this argument. Today, I'm going to put on my socialist hat and I'm going to critique what I just concluded in the last episode uh, in two ways. First of all, I'm going to complicate the case for rights of private property by asking an additional question, which is, what are the rights of labor in the productive process and the distribution of income? And then I'm going to ask another question, which is that is the incentive to create more productivity, that is to create more goods in an economy, really to the benefit of social, uh, general social welfare in, at this time in the United States of America, or is that profit incentive harming us and creating lesser quality of life more than it's helping enhance our quality of life? So there's two things I'm going to look at today. And once again, why I'm engaged in this series is the hope of opening a discussion about the foundations of our social systems and how we can improve upon them, because I think we're at a crisis point where our social system is breaking down. And you can see that every week in the news. This week, the surge in COVID cases, infections and hospitalizations, that's becoming even more acute than it was at the height, the, the previous height of the uh, pandemic. Uh, evidences this widespread lack of trust in our political system, lack of trust in our medical profession, lack of trust in the media to tell us the truth, this generalized lack of trust in our institutions, and a lot of the fear behind the uh, anger and the suspicion these days comes out of a sense that people's economic position has been eroding for decades 
took a big hit after the recession of 2008 and is now taking another big hit because of the public health measures instituted to protect us from the coronavirus, people feel vulnerable economically. And so this, in some people, generates a lack of faith in our economic systems that they're capable of distributing uh, incomes and wealth in a, in a way that are fair to people. And some people blame it more on the political system and uphold uh, their faith in the capitalist system that if just managed properly by the government or left alone as much as possible, that it would be functioning fine. Well, I'm going to take the side that uh, it, it would not be functioning fine, that it, there is a fundamental fall in our economic system as well. So with all these crises and faith in our system, I think the ultimate outcome is going to be more social breakdown, more than we're seeing lately, social strife and um, anger and contention which in turn will result in one of two things, either the institution of a dictatorial power to clamp down and create some kind of greater social um, stability or some kind of overhaul. So that's why I'm doing this series to look at what kind of overhaul that would be by inquiring into the foundations of our current system, asking where they have gone wrong, and then trying to come up with a practical program that can address how we can do this better. So today, I'm going to start first with the rights of labor. Poor people gonna rise up and get their share. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's theirs. And that was Tracy Chapman's song, Talking About a Revolution, as performed by Tamara Weber. Well, I'm not talking about a revolution today, but I might be talking about the grounds for a revolution because I'm going to talk about labor rights. I'm going to talk about it in two senses. First, what is labor's right to a share of the income of a business organization that they participate in? And second, what is labor's rights to control their own work activities within a labor, within a business organization. So right to an income share and a right to control of their work activities. Let me go back for a minute, just a few minutes, to John Locke and his theory of property rights. As we saw in the last episode of Allen on Politics, John Locke, writing at the end of the um, 17th century in the late 1600s, proposed that if you expend labor on natural resources, then you have an ownership stake in them. At the same time, he raised this odd example of a master's servant doing the work on raw materials, on natural resources, and somehow the master appropriating the property. Now, how did he reconcile these two? He didn't say, but I think the problem really came in from the fact that both property rights and the master-servant relationship, which is, is also, in effect, the employer-employee relationship, were both in existence in his time. And he kind of took them for granted and, in a sense, was trying to justify this relationship, uh, this, these arrangements of both uh, property rights and your right to employ somebody else to do the work for you, and then you would appropriate the results of their labor. So they, they're incompatible. 
but he raised them both. And I think the connecting thread here is the intuition that when people put effort into something and they improve upon material resources, that improvement is due to their effort, their work with it. So therefore, they deserve compensation for that. That should be at least the value of whatever they contributed to the increased value of what they were working on. All right, so far. So this was the grounds for a labor theory of value that was used by economists back oh, in the century or so uh, after John Locke. And what they claimed was that, you know, any improvement in material resources or material goods of any kind, whether natural goods or manufactured goods, any improvement was due to the application of labor to them. Well, socialists picked up this idea and said, well, then all increase in value was due to labor and there was no uh, increase due to the property used. Um, labor transformed natural resources into things, including uh, tools and machines and buildings. And then labor applied to the use of tools and machines and buildings, etc., then created the um, extra value of whatever product they were creating. So labor all down the line was responsible for increases in value. And therefore, all income from business entities selling things should be assigned to workers, not to owners. There is no room for owners, um, no justification for ownership. Well, obviously, people were trying to justify Contemporary arrangements didn't like that idea. And so they had to come up with a new theory uh, for why the owners of capital goods, the things that workers work with, why the owners of capital goods would be assigned a share of the income of the enterprise, of the work organization. And what they came up with was called marginal productivity theory, which is quite complex and also controversial, even among economists. So let me try to give a very simplified version of how this would work. If you imagine that uh, you hold, you're running a business and you expend the same amount on labor, but you increase the amount you expend on capital goods, that is machinery, tools, um, space, office space, buildings, whatever, you increase your spending on that. If there's a greater number of products produced, or in some way a, a better products produced that would in increase your income from sales, then that can't be attributed to labor because you're just spending the same amount on labor. You're already compensating labor for what they did, and any increased amount of value would be due to the tools, and so therefore to the owners. Now, marginal productivity has had a number of critiques, which I can't claim to all understand because I'm not an economist and haven't looked at it that deeply. But here's a couple of things I would focus on is number one, they still don't propose a grounds for original property rights. So you can say that capital tools contribute to productivity, but who is responsible for that? Who gets that? It's somebody who owns it, presumably, but how do they come to own it? So there's no theory of property rights originally. There's just a theory that some advances in value of the products of labor would be due to the machinery use, to increases in the machinery use.
The other flaw in the theory is that it has no account of profits. Where do profits come from? We all recognize that this is a key part of our capitalist system, the generation of profits. But if you're paying capital owners their share of the value of products and you're paying laborers their share of the value of products, there's no surplus. There's no extra amount going towards profits. So as long as you're paying labor their fair share, their entire share of increase of value of the products, then nothing else can be said. Everybody should be happy, right? That's the best you could compete for in a fair market. Um, it, this theory assumes fair competition. So laborers, the best deal they could get would be how much they add to the value of the product. And the best deal that owners of capital goods would be able to get is how much they contribute to the value of the final product. So everybody gets what they deserve in a sense. Um, and there is no surplus. There's no profit. So where does profit actually come from? Well, here I think you have to say that profit comes from market imperfections. Sure, in a perfectly competitive market, everybody might get their shares, but there would be no profit. So where does profit come from? It comes from an imperfect market, which means that some negotiators, some who are negotiating for their share of the final product, the income from the final product, have some advantage of other participants that they are negotiating with. And here the key figures would be the owners of the capital goods and the laborers. Now, what kind of advantage would each have? Well, there's a number you could point to, um, including superior knowledge of the capital owners, but that's mostly because they have a, um, a privileged position in the running of the corporation already. And who gets to run the corporation is a subject I'll get to in a second. They also have a privileged position in that there's a power differential between owners and workers. And it's mostly manifested in the fact that owners can easily combine their, their efforts in negotiating. They can create a union of investors, in essence, by coming together as a corporation. That is what a corporation is in the for-profit world. It's a union of investors to negotiate with the laborers. Okay? But laborers have a much harder time of coming together to form a union, not only because law makes it easier to form a corporation than to form a union, but because labor has a number of other disadvantages in getting organized. Um, early in the history of capitalism, one of those disadvantages was it was illegal to form a labor union. And violent measures were taken to keep people from doing that or to engage in strikes or in any way impede fair competition between the owners and the laborers. So again, force was applied to establish that uh, the superior position of capital would be maintained over labor. Therefore, they could bargain for more than they deserved in, in the sense of marginal productivity theory. Okay, so that said, if everybody's being paid their fair share under perfect competition, then who has an interest in controlling the organization? Okay, this is a separate question, but I think it relates. It's going to come together in the end. Have patience. Who has interest in maintaining an organization? Okay, so the capital providers are being paid their fair share and the labor providers are being paid their fair share. Now, which of them has an interest in controlling and therefore would negotiate in these negotiations to be able to control the conditions of labor? 
Well, obviously, laborers have an interest in the conditions of labor. They can be more or less unpleasant. They can give them greater satisfaction in exercising some uh, decision-making capacity over their own human activities. There's a lot of reasons why laborers would want to have some control over their work. On the other hand, what would be the advantage for providers of capital to have control over the workplace? Now, really, the only advantage they could have is to take some of the share of the income that would be that would belong to labor. And they can only do that because current uh, current arrangements allow for them to have this ownership right over the entire corporation, which extends to control of it. And they use that control to bargain with laborers to try to get more out of them with less pay. Um, otherwise, you could say that labor could easily pay the capital providers simply by paying them for the capital goods or renting them from them and then doing whatever they want with their labor arrangements, with their control of the organization. Capital providers should be satisfied as long as they're being paid a fair market price for whatever capital goods they own. So why does social policy make it the norm for capital providers to gain control of a workplace and not laborers? Well, that's a complex question as well, but I think it comes down to fundamentally the right to exploit laborers by their superior bargaining position, by owners of capital having a superior bargaining, bargaining position to labor that's maintained by current legal arrangements. Hey, time is truly That last bit of music was from the Isley Brothers, Fight the Power. Now, I know the argument in that last section was kind of sketchy. And by that, I don't mean um, deceptive or inviting suspicion. I hope I just mean it lacks in details. And that's because I'm tackling a pretty broad subject. I'm trying to uh, sketch out a vision for some reorganization of our social systems, particularly political and economic and present justifications for those uh, differences, for that different vision, as well as a practical program for moving toward that. So this is why I call this an invitation to a discussion. I hope you can respond to me where there's not enough detail or I'm not very clear by asking questions, asking for clarifications, offering a different, a different arguments in place of that. And we can go on from there. Um, you can offer those comments on the comment section of the Allen on Politics YouTube channel or the Allen on Politics Facebook page. So where are we at? In my last episode, I said that an argument for private property rights couldn't be justified on the basis of some natural rights theory, but it could be justified on the basis of overall social benefit, that if the creation of a regime of private property rights, for example, gave an incentive for the holders of property to pursue the most productive use of their property in order to benefit themselves, and as a side effect, increased the overall wealth of society that then spread throughout it and created a higher standard of living for people, it could be justified. And I think the history of capitalism in the United States has to some degree borne out that kind of process and so created an argument for a lot of people that 
maintaining the system of private property is a good thing. But I also question if at this point in time that that justification for private property is still valid. Is it is the pursuit of the most productive use of property creating worse problems than it is solving? That is, is the creation of greater wealth done at the cost of damage to the environment, particularly climate change? And here think of fossil fuel companies pursuing profits for their investors, even at the cost of contributing to climate change as we can all see it happening. Is that worth it? And there's other things you can ask. What is the effects of the pursuit of profit for private property owners? What is the effect on our health? You know, pharmaceutical companies pursuing profits um, and insurance companies pursuing profits both raise the cost of health care. And a lot of people aren't able to get the health care they need. And I could go on and on of how the pursuit of profit by individuals, investors, by individual investors, has a lot of side effects that are not to the benefit of overall social welfare. Have we reached a tipping point in that where the, the detrimental effects have outweighed any benefits from it? And I would say there's a case that we have. So how do we remedy that? What can we do differently? How do we incorporate these other considerations into the allocation of material resources to particular uses? How do we allocate uh, material resources in such a way not only to increase the wealth of society, but to ensure that people have health care, ensure that the environment's protected, ensure that we're not suffering the effects of climate change and so forth. How do we improve our quality of life and not just the overall wealth or uh, GNP, the national product of our economy? Now, one way you could do that is to have the individuals who own properties start to incorporate these other considerations into their investment decisions. But I think that's difficult to do, even on the best intentions of some investors, which they don't all have. A lot of them simply want to uh, get the most profit out of their investments because the vehicles for investing in companies are generally predicated on the principle of looking for the highest return. It becomes very complicated to make decisions about investments that incorporate all these different considerations, um, health effects and climate effects and so on and so forth, it's hard to do that. It's much simpler to uh, determine where your money is going to go based on its return to your investments. So we've created a social system, uh, including Wall Street and investment firms and all these ways of investing that are all premised on getting a high return for your investment. The only consideration on the other side is how safe do you want your investment to be? So that's difficult to incorporate those different considerations into private investment decisions or even into uh, investment decisions by mediators between the private investor and the companies they invest in. We could delegate that responsibility for allocating material resources according to different considerations by giving it over to government and thus democratically giving the mandate to government to use our material resources in the best fashion that improves our quality of life as well as the quantity of goods we have, gets the right balance, uh, whatever that might happen to be. But historically, there's been a tendency for gov governments that 
control the allocation of property to also control political power in their own hands, to use that allocation power to amass political power and thus to turn into something oppressive and reduce the democratic input of the citizens. I'm thinking, of course, of the Soviet Union and other countries that have followed their example. Um, does that come at the cost of democracy and citizens' ability to participate and have personal freedom? That's hard to say, but we have a long tradition in the United States of seeing private property as some kind of protection against oppressive governments. And I think that's a strong tradition that can't easily be overcome. So how do we reconcile the two things? Well, I think here the best alternative to either expecting individual investors to have a variety of concerns in their investing decision or turning it over to the government to allocate property along those principles is to give the control of work organizations over to the employees, to the laborers, because laborers will have the desire not only to increase their own wealth, but to have good working conditions and a um, livable community and all these other things, because they are able to take these things more into consideration, having multiple roles as citizens and workers, and the decisions that they make in the business organization are closer to home, it's harder for them to offset responsibilities to someone else. That is, the investor says, well, it's the management's decision how to use that money. The management says, well, we've got a mandate simply to use it to increase wealth. The, the laborers have no protection against that. They say, we have the responsibility here to decide how work is going to be performed and whether we're going to sacrifice some of our um, po possibility of contributing creating wealth for ourselves against other human considerations. So this dovetails with my argument in the previous section that the laborers would be the most logical choice to give over control of business organizations to. That's a big order and it has a lot of practical problems attached with it, but this is what I want to leave you with today is a sense that we could have a political economic system in which investors have property to invest, but they do that does not give them control over the decisions of the businesses they invest in. It just gives them a right to a return on their investment, along with interest that carries the um, time factor that they're giving over money that they could use for consumption. They're giving it to you for a time to use and risk that both those can be built into an interest rate. So instead of having ownership represented by a stock, they'd simply be investing in bonds that lend money, that allow companies to borrow money, and then pay back the principal with interest and retain the rights to use that money in the fashions they think best, as long as it also pays back their bondholders. Now, the big difference here is that when you have owners who have profits from the company, there's no end to the profits, right? As long as they supposedly own the company, they can get profits. But with bonds, you would say that ownership just gives the, the right to have a return on what they're lending, and it ends when the principal is repaid. So that's it for today. Thank you again for listening. I hope it was clear. I felt like uh, there's a lot of detail I could have added and didn't. Um, 
and I've already said where you can leave your comments. Please like, share, etc. this video, and I hope to hear from you, and I hope you return next week. Thanks a lot.